Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. Take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Paul Schrader's new drama, First Reformed. The film tells the story of Reverend Ernst Toller, a former military chaplain who is now the parish pastor of a small Dutch Reformed church in upstate New York. Struggling with the death of his son, who he encouraged to enlist in the armed forces, he finds his faith further challenged after a pregnant parishioner asks him to counsel her husband, a radical environmentalist who doesn't want to bring a child into a world he believes is doomed. In addition to First Reformed, Mr. Schrader's directorial credits include the feature films Blue Collar, Hardcore, American Gigolo, Cat People, The Canyons, and Dog Eat Dog, the documentary feature Venice 70, Future Reloaded, and the movie for television Witch Hunt. After a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Schrader spoke with director John Patrick Shanley about filming First Reformed. During their discussion, Mr. Schrader talks about how spirituality in cinema has always been a key theme for him, knowing when to break your own rules and when not to, and how he believes that the last scene of a film should continue to play out on the sidewalk outside the theater. Um, um, I, I, um, I'm, I'm going to start by saying a few things, and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll start to bother you. Um, uh, it, the, the sobriety uh, and somberness of this film, the uncompromising nature of that four-square camera and that overcast sky and the lack of score and the opening uh, and the withholding, the Calvinist withholding of um, any, any sign of pleasure or hedonism or uh, anything but a complete sticking with the subject is incredibly admirable and ultimately if that's what the whole film was I would think a, a somewhat sterile uh, exercise but the moment when her hair falls over his face is before they even levitate uh, it took my breath away uh, and um, and I had every hope that the film engendered in me as a as an audience member and as an artist uh, the the hope which I know is something that your work has everything to do with of transcendence in ever unexpected ways uh, you're a perverse filmmaker you're a uh, try to torture us and try to make it hard for us and but you know that's a that's a, a worthy a very worthy journey and um, I was um, shocked and unexpectedly moved by the the final 10 minutes of the film I just and and things before that as well but there is a, a burden that you and a pain that I feel you carry and you 
dramatize the way that you might be relieved of that burden and of that pain, uh, uh, which has to do with some kind of <coughs> catharsis having to do with love and acceptance and suffering sort of in a fireball all at the same time. So, what, first of all, I, I have to say that I really admired the writing in this film. I thought it was really good uh, and really stuck with it. Uh, and uh, very, you know, com deeply uncompromising. And uh, how did you come to write it? Uh, thank you, John. I've known John for some time. Thank you for doing this. Um, when I was a uh, young film critic, I wrote a book on spirituality and cinema, and. You know, I, I realized that there was a kind of bridge from my sacred past in the uh, seminary and the uh, the profane present in Los Angeles, and it was a bridge of style. And I wrote a book about that, which is which I've now rewritten and is coming out in a week. I never thought that that was me as an artist. I was just too intoxicated by action and empathy and sex and violence. And these are not in the Transcendental Toolkit. And uh, so I just said, you know, anybody who tries to connect that book with my films is wrong. I'm not that guy. I'm never going to make that film. And then about three years ago, I was giving an award to Pavel Pawlowski for Ida. And we started talking about spirituality and cinema and about the new economics of filmmaking. And I had to walk uptown afterward, and uh, I said to myself, it's time. You know, you're going to be 70 next year. It's time to write that movie you swore you would never write. And once I sort of made that decision and started revisiting films that worked in this way, on the austere side, the durational side, um, you know, it'd be, it be... It started coming quite quickly. Uh, it's you know it's one of those old stories. You know, uh, it took me you know whatever uh, fifty years to prepare for and two months to write. And, and uh, just looking back over the body of your work, I have the sort of bigger question, which pertains to this film too. It's like. How far along are you in your concept when you go into pre-production, when you start talking to the art director, production designer? Uh, depends who the collaborator is. In this case, you know, I knew it had everything had to be spare. You know, and so basically, I start the conver conversation by saying, "If it moves, take it away." <laughs> uh, and uh, and I had a very young crew. I had picked up this crew from uh, when I did a film called Doggy Dog, which was a gonzo kind of a profane Tarantino-esque uh, bit of vulgar violence. And I kept them on for this, but um, but I knew I knew I, this kind of style. I knew how it worked, and uh, so. I knew that you, you, what you had to do in terms of 
all these withholding devices, which you, you mentioned. Uh, you keep, you know, movies are so needy and desperate for your love. They will do anything. <laughs> they, you know, they grab you by the lapels and they show you some pretty girls and some fast cars and, and they play music to tell you how to feel all the time. And we're so used to movies being hungry uh, for us that it, start, it gets interesting when a movie starts working the other way, when it starts leaning away from you. When you get interested and all the movie starts receding and saying, I'm not going to give it to you. you got to keep coming. you got to keep coming. And, uh, and that is all done through a whole series of withholding devices. Different directors use them in different proportions. And there's about eight or ten of them that you use. You know, one you mentioned, the, the lack of music, you know, and uh, uh, the, the long take, the uh, planometric composition, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Because I know, it, now, what was that movie you did with James Coburn? Uh, Affliction. I feel like a, a, this is the, the grandson of Affliction. <laughs> yeah, but of course, Affliction is very um, psychological. Mm -hmm. And this uh, is quite cryptic, you know. And uh, you know, Affliction is a kind of flesh and blood movie, and this is a kind of flesh and bone movie. Mm -hmm. I just thought that up. That's kind of good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, should I open it up for questions, or is that a good thing to do? Well, I, maybe I'd just throw one well, other thing in, which is that you know this uh, film is very um, satisfying to me. Uh, the reaction we've received so far is, you know, unlike anything I've had before. So I have, I, hopefully, it'll do well when it comes out on Friday. In uh, March of 1969, I was a film critic for the LA Free Press in Los Angeles. And I went to a screening in the, in the morning, on Tuesday morning, uh, on Los Feliz Theater. And I saw a pickpocket, a film by Robert Brasso. And in that 75 minutes, two things happened. One is, I saw a connection between the sacred and the profane and this connection of this bridge of style. There is a, there is a bridge of style. And eventually that became the book, Transcendental Style. But the other thing that I sensed in that moment was that there would be a place for me in, as an artist. I, up to that point, I'd been a critic. I had a very elitist view of criticism. We were actually better than film artists, and we would, we would tell you when you made something good. And, um, and I was a protege of Pauline Kales, and, uh, um, but I looked at this movie, and I said, you know, I could make a movie like that. I, I was living in a house with four other UCLA film students, and they were all making a biker film for Roger Corbin called Naked Angels. And I just thought they were so declassé. De and uh, they probably felt the same of me. And I looked at this film, and I said, I could do that. He writes in his journal, then he goes out and steals some stuff. Then he comes back and he writes some more. Then he goes out and talks to the girl who lived the floor below him. And then he comes back and writes some more. I could make that movie. 
And two years later, I wrote Taxi Driver, which is that movie. And, uh, and I've periodically returned to that movie over the years as um, events of my life ebb and flow. So he was uh, lonely, he was a taxi driver, he was narcissistic, and he was a gigolo, he was anxious, and he was a drug dealer, he was superficial, and he was a society walker, and now he's in despair, and he's irreverent. And so in that theater, two seeds dropped in a Petri dish, and it took 50 years for the seed of taxi driver to come around and meet the seed of Brissot. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's why I um, am intimidated by this film, because I really feel a sense of completion. It's wonderful the way it it ends. I know. So I actually heard somebody in the audience go, "What, what happened? The best part was just about to happen." <laughs> uh, and I and I thought, "Yeah, no, the best part belongs to me." Uh, and, and and I like that, you know, and that this person is saved by love, the exonerating power of acceptance and love. Well. Um you know, I've always felt that the last scene of a film should play on the sidewalk in front of the theater. Mm -hmm. That you know, two people walk out, one says to the other, blah, 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 and the other, the other person says no. Now they're walking to their car and the movie is still playing in their heads. Uh, I, what percentage, uh, any, if you thought he was alive at the end, raise your hand. No one thought, there's one person. You thought he was alive. I, I did. But no one else, everyone else thought. What? Eight. Oh, eight. Because um, it's, it, it's meant to be read either way. You know, this is a, a, a miraculous act, and he is rescued. Or it's an ecstatic vision while he dies. Both are kind of good things. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know the answer to which one it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a very, I mean, you know, if you, if you feel your life is saved, uh, uh, it's saved. <laughs> and if you don't feel your life is saved, then it's not saved. And I felt that he felt that his life was yeah. saved. Yeah. Yeah, it was the, the intervention of grace into. Yeah. 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 Uh, and yes, sir, back there. He's asking, I'm supposed to repeat yeah. the questions, uh, why you chose the ratio to shoot and that you did. Well, I mentioned before talking to Pavlovsky about Ida. Well, Ida is in this format. It's also black and white. So when I said, I thought, I'll do a film like that. Uh, I had a delivery requirement that prohibited black and white but I did keep the format. And it's a good format for a number of reasons. One, of course, it tells the viewer immediately that this is a movie different than other movies, you know, and that there's gonna be less of it. So a very primitive kind of withholding device. But also, when you work in that format, the eye is driven into vertical lines much more than horizontal lines. And you really see over and over again the contour of the human body which is different than the contour of the face. 
So that is uh, quite striking. But also, another thing happens is that over the shoulders, which is the lingua franca of film today, there weren't many over the shoulders in the old days, in the golden format, because you didn't need them. You know, just shot, two shot, one, one. Once they started, once the screen format started becoming horizontal, and you had a big head, you know, on either side of the frame, because they didn't want to put it in the center, then you had a hole on the other side of the frame, and so you put a shoulder in there, or you put the side of somebody's face. And now, if you watch television, you're just watching over the shoulders continually. There are no over the shoulders in this film. Now, no one in this audience turned to the person next to them and said, oh my God, there are no overs. But, there, but you knew that it was different. And it's out of this disconcerting disparity between what you expect and what you're seeing, and this unease that you can start to work with the durational aspects of time. And so that's, that's your answer about the, the square format. Is that, would that be what they call academy? Uh, well, there's a, if this is 137. Academy is 133. Okay. Because they always said the Academy was probably the greatest uh, format for the close-up, yeah. for the human face. But also it's the greatest f format for the full-figure shot. Mm -hmm. Which never occurred to me, I have to say. <laughs> and questions? Observations? Visceral? Visceral. Well, that he's asking, the gentleman's asking how long Paul had to shoot the film. That's one of the reasons this film exists now, because it's become so less expensive to make a movie. You know, anybody can make a movie now. Of course, no one can make money at it, but anyone can make one. Uh, and so this film, when I began, would have taken 45 days. I shot it in 20. So it means that in real dollars, this costs half as much as it used to. And so that subject matter that was once financially irresponsible starts to become responsible because you can say, I can make this in 20 days, uh, everybody's going to work for less. Um, if it's a film of substance at all, you're going to get your money back. Now, I don't believe that a a uh, filmmaker has the uh, obligation to make his backers rich. But I do feel that there is some kind of obligation to return their money if you can. And, uh, and maybe the reason I never pitched a film like this in the past is I never felt I could convince them that I would return their money. But in this case, I, you know, at, at three million bucks, 20 days, you'll get your money back. Yeah, you got a good shot. Yeah. <laughs> The question is, did Paul have Ethan Hawke in mind from the beginning? No, I mean, I, I've always, as a writer, you know, when you think of actors, writing, makes, it makes you a lazy writer. You know, because you're writing the scene, you hear Al Pacino read the lines, and you say, wow, what a great speech. <laughs> it's not a great speech. Al's a great actor. And so you really try not to put an actor into that image you're creating. You want the actor to come to the script. You don't want the script to come to the actor. 
And, um, but about halfway through this, I started thinking of a certain physiological type, which is like these priests, you know, like the, the country priest of Bresson or the Montgomery priest of I Confess. And you know, so I started thinking, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal, Oscar Isaac, Ethan Hawke, and Ethan was 10 years older. And I said, you know, I think this is just the right film for Ethan now. Uh, I'd met him over the years, you know, and uh, and he's quite, you know, an intelligent man, you know, playwright, a musician, a writer, an actor, a director, and uh, so I, I I sent it to him, and uh, he responded uh, in, in less than a day. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. So the question is, uh, it seems out of character that this guy would plan to blow up the church and everybody in it. Yeah. Would that be inaccurate? Okay, very good. Uh, this man is sick. You know, he has what Kierkegaard called the sickness out to death, despair, angst. He's trying to self-medicate his sickness with prayer, with a journal, with alcohol, with the liturgy of the church. He's not having a lot of luck with that. And then he meets this young kid who's a kind of servant of his own dead boy. And he counsels him, and the kid dies, and he catches the virus. Now, I don't know whether he's really a radical environmentalist terrorist or not, but he catches this kid's virus, and all of the selfish, suicidal pathology that he was wallowing in, now is suddenly wrapped in the mantle of God's creation. And it elevates his pathology, his pathology of suicidal glory, into a realm that makes it more acceptable. So it is a kind of delusion that, you know, this is one of the uh, the the diseases that built into the DNA of Christianity. Uh, you know, Christianity begins as a blood cult in the Old Testament. You know, slaughter, slaughter, streets run with blood. A representative figure appears and dies once, and we don't have to sacrifice anymore. But we do have to participate in his blood. We are washed in his blood. There is a fount that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And so it still has the remnants of a, of a blood cult. And when Christians go off the rails, this is often how they go. They, they, they get confused between the symbolic sacrifice of Christ and their own sacrifice. And they start thinking that uh, if I suffer enough, you know, I will my blood will wash me clean. And you'll see this every Easter when people start whipping themselves and nailing themselves on crosses. And, um, and so that is a, um, it's, it's deeply embedded in, in the Christian notion. And when Reverend Jeffers, Cedric says to him, God does not want our suffering. He suffered for us. Well, that's the point. But this character is all already beyond that, you know. And he is committed to um, a suffering. So that is the, that is how the disease of a despair manifests itself in him. 
Yeah, I have to comment about the first discussion between the priest and the guy who's going to ultimately kill himself. First of all, I thought it was just a great extended little debate that went on. And I, I smiled at the character trait of the priest when he basically said in his head, this is so great. <laughs> <laughs> and that was actually really the only moment of levity, you know, that you sort of, but I feel like you allowed it, you know. Yeah, and of course he doesn't express it on his face. Right, right. And then, and the line that takes him out of that reverie is, the other guy says, do you believe in martyrdom? Mm -hmm. He says, I'm not sure what you mean, you know, but there it is, you know, it's on the table now. Yeah. And, uh, and martyrdom will, you know, like, the vast martyrdom will out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and anybody? Yes? <laughs> so the question is, which part of the process does Paul enjoy most? The writing, the shooting, the editing, or does he, uh, does he hate them all? <laughs> Fortunately, someone asked that same question to Francois Truffaut <laughs> years ago. And Truffaut said, when I'm writing, I like directing best. When I'm directing, I like editing best. And when I'm editing, I like writing best. And I think that's the best answer I've heard to that one. It's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I write plays and movies, and every time I'm doing a movie, I'm like, never again. <laughs> From now on, it's the theater. And when I'm in rehearsal with a, a, a show for the theater, I'm like, never again. <laughs> Only film. I think we all like the back door. We have one eye on the back door. <laughs> yes, sir. Why did I cast Cedric? Um, we have such a propensity to stereotype white men of the cloth. It's just built in. It's a huge problem. You know, the moment you put up <clears throat> a middle-aged white evangelical preacher, it's Jerry Falwell, it's uh, Franklin Graham, it's Pat Robertson, it's Joel Osteen, and often they're in a box, and the actor can't get out of that box. And you read them so superficially. And I didn't want this megachurch guy to be read that superficially. I had to somehow break that propensity. So I imagined him uh, black and funny. And the casting person said to me, now, who is this guy? I said, well, you know, he's kind of like Steve Harvey. And, you know, and we weren't going to get Steve Harvey, the hardest working man in show business. And so uh, the next day, uh, the casting person came to me and said, well, what do you think of Cedric, the entertainer? And, you know, Cedric had, in fact, done uh, serious work. He'd done Mice and Men on stage. And so it wasn't unknown to him. And, uh, but I think that he allowed me to uh, keep you, meaning audience, from putting that megachurch mega guy in, in a stereotyped box. And so when did you finish writing this script? I'm asking that question in relation to current events. Uh, I had written it uh, before the election, but uh, I had my first meeting with Killer uh, on November 9th. And it was a strange day in this city, you know, people walking around 
like zombies bumping into into walls, you know, trying to imagine what hell was coming. And now we, we sort of see it. But yeah, so uh, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, but obviously the whole thing about the ecology is not Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, we we've made our decision. We human beings, us Homo sapiens, we sort of made our decision already. And it doesn't really matter what Trump's going to do, and he can't undo it. You know, it just matters of how quickly that exponential curve will will swing, because once it starts swinging, it's going to swing fast. And I personally see no reason for optimism. I cannot see a scenario whereby uh, Homo sapiens survive this century in the form we now are in. Sorry, children. Sorry, my grandchildren. Sorry we f***ed up. (laughs) We were wrong. Our parents were the greatest generation. We were the most selfish generation. Sorry. What more can you say? Well, (laughs) I think it's important that we don't end there. (laughs) Do we have another question or observation? Oh, yes. It's just sort of the, the optimism of the Dutch versus the optimism of the Irish. Well, I have what they call biological optimism. <laughs> In other words, I feel good, then I think, I think it's good. <laughs> you know, if the world's gotten a sh- I'm like, yeah, well, we'll work it out. If I'm not feeling well, it's the end of the world. Yes. It wasn't in the script. So the question is the staging of this scene where uh, Cedric spins around in the chair and Ethan is sort of trying to catch his eye but can't quite. Was that in the script? No, it wasn't in the script. And, um, and since I, I'm not allowed to move the camera or pan or tilt the camera, I can't do an expressive camera move that would reflect that reality of, of this man just saying, you know, here he goes again and all this stuff about the insects and the and and so um while we were location scouting looking at various offices one of them had a swivel chair in it and i made a mental note to myself to make sure we have a swivel chair so he could just swivel away and i don't have to do a camera move now say just a little more about why you couldn't move the camera because we made that rule uh, and, um, and it's a withholding rule. And it, it's the same thing, another withholding device is not jumping in with the edits. So if I show two people, you know, like in 432, and I don't start jumping in and telling you which one is more important, you then as a viewer have to start saying, am I more interested in who's talking or who's listening? And which is what you, you do on stage, and you get more involved. And so, um, you know, the, the, the lock-off camera is a withholding device, but then occasionally you have to break the rule. And you know, but you break it in a way that th- throws people off. So there's that odd shot when the car pulls up and pulls through the frame, and she comes out, and she walks camera right, then he enters, and all of a sudden there's a dolly move. Mm-hmm. And, and a, and I do that, you know, why would I make a, why would I make a rule? Well, I made it so I could break it, but you can only break it once. Then you have to go back to the rule again. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, uh, I just want to say one other thing about withholding devices. 
Here's the simplest explanation, the most interesting one. When you shoot a scene and somebody enters or exits a room, you cut on action. You cut when the door opens or you cut when the door closes. Now, if you get involved with withholding, you, get, you begin with uh, the delayed cut. Now, Brayson was one of the first directors to start using the delayed cut. A guy leaves the room, the door closes, and he holds on the door. One, two, three. Then he cuts. Now, this is not what your eye would do. Your eye doesn't stay watching the door after someone exits. It finds something else to watch. But here, you as a viewer are being told by the director, you have to watch this door. Well, what's happening? It's not nothing. Something is happening. But it's no longer about the door. It's about the time you spend watching it. And that is how you can manipulate uh, people by, uh, by using boredom as a scalpel. And it's a very dangerous scalpel, because if you use it wrong, everybody gets up and leaves. <laughs> but if you use it right, they can go to a place that they don't, they don't usually go. Yes, yes. I mean, I, 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 I'm, because I think, that, I think you use that device very well. Uh, and uh, whereas, like, for instance, in the reboot of Twin Peaks, I'm like, okay, you're abusing my attention <laughs> span. I know that that may be a, the wrong thing to say. But, um, uh, you know, and I admire a lot of the things that David Lynch does, but one of the things that I did not admire about the reboot of Twin Peaks was the way that he would just let the audience hang for so long that we were in danger of walking away and we were in danger of other people using the device no longer being no longer effective because it had been used in this way. Well, I wondered if that would prompt you to say anything. No, I mean, I, you're talking about the, the guy cleaning up at the bar, you know, which is kind of, uh, but that, you know, episode eight, they're going into Stan Brackett's Bruce Conner land was kind of extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, the, the thing about withholding devices is, you know, it's so easy to abuse them. And directors who work on the slow side or the contemplative side, you know, starting with uh, Antonioni and Mizuguchi and Janesco and all the way up to the current uh, directors, they, net, they look at this buffet of techniques and no two of them uses the same elements in the same proportion. So you don't actually get two films that work the same way. Some people say, oh, you know, Bellatar says, I'm going to do the incremental lateral pan, you know. And then other directors said, no, I'm not, I, I'm not pan, I mean dolly. And then others, no, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. And so each artist finds his own little formula for withholding, and some of them are more successful than others. Uh, and uh, some of them move you more than others. Well, I, I had dinner at Paul's apartment about, I'm going to say about three, three and a half years ago, and you said, I'm thinking about doing <laughs> something about this Calvinist church kind of thing that I, you know, swore I would never do. And then, you know, cut to three, three and a half years later, and you did it. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff.
Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. In the coming weeks, we'll hear from directors Jay Chandrasekhar and Morgan Neville, so be sure to click subscribe so you won't miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.